Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. We are currently studying the ways in which we can understand Scripture. It is important for us to realize that Scripture has a certain way of being understood and that the Church recommends that way for us. And we've seen already in previous lectures that there are four senses to Scripture the literal sense, which is the foundational sense, and then the three senses we call spiritual, the first one being the allegorical sense, and that is the sense that applies to Christ. And the two remaining ones are the anagogical sense, the sense that addresses the end times, but also addresses the church, and then the moral sense, or tropological sense, which is the sense that addresses the life of the faithful today. And I do advise you that you um, familiarize yourself with these senses because they play a very important role in our understanding of Scripture. What I would like to talk to you tonight about are the two senses that we have not yet addressed, the, the anagogical sense and the moral sense. The first thing that we need to realize is that Every passage of scripture is, has a multiple senses in it. No passage of scripture has only a simple or a single sense. Because scripture, by its very nature, was written as a collaboration or as a union between a human author and the Holy Spirit. The human author was not writing a particular text thinking that he's actually writing scripture. St. Paul did not sit down to write his letters thinking, I'm writing text that will be part of the canonical scripture. Had anyone told him that, he may have been amazed. Or he may have written them differently. Those letters of St. Paul were written addressing a specific issue which was important to the ones the letter was sent. Yet the Holy Spirit carries forth the meaning of Scripture so that it reaches us today in a very meaningful way and it reaches those after us tomorrow. That is why Scripture has multiple meanings. And what we're going to look at tonight is that meaning or that sense that applies to 
to the church. I would venture to say that if you or friends of yours have difficulties with the faith, most of the difficulties are not scripture related. They're actually church related. Most of the questions you may have are not about that particular point of scripture, but it's really about the way the church reads that particular point of scripture. I would also say that we as Catholics have a duty to understand what the church teaches. Better yet, we have a duty of the heart to come and know the church the way Christ knows the church. And then we can make up our minds. Bishop Sheen used to say that there aren't a hundred people in the United States who hate the Catholic Church. But there are millions who hate what they think the Catholic Church is. And it's our duty as Catholics to help them see the church for what it is. As such, scripture cannot be read by a purely intellectual endeavor. You, you can't read scripture profitably the way you'd be reading a report from NASA. You read scripture with your life. And the more your life is directed to Christ, the more your life is Christ-centered, the more you'll be able to read Scripture. The two go hand in hand. This may seem very abstract at this point, but I'll put it to you in a different way for you to understand what I'm talking about. If you have a strong family, if you have a large extended family, you know that if you bring a friend into this family, say for a birthday, the, the friend is going to miss or misunderstand what's going on because the friend can only interpret what is going on intellectually. He doesn't or she doesn't have that touch to understand what's going on. All that context that you yourselves and your family members have built over a lifetime. Therefore, when you speak with your parents or you speak with your grandparents or your uncles and aunts and cousins, you aren't speaking with them with words found today. You're speaking to them with words that were built over a lifetime. Scripture is like that. You have to become heavenly minded. You have to truly become heavenly minded to understand scripture. So I guess my point is that you can't separate your theology, the way you believe, from your morality, the way you live. The two go hand in hand. The two influence each other. Now as far as the anagogical sense is concerned, the church teaches us in paragraph 113 of the Catechism, that we need to read scripture within the living tradition of the whole church. The living tradition of the whole church. That word living has a very specific and precise meaning. It indicates the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. The church is alive precisely because the church embodies the Holy Spirit. 
Therefore, when someone says, all I need is Scripture, and all I need is the Holy Spirit, what that person is saying is, all I need is the church. Because after all, it is the church who decided which books were canonical, and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the church. You need to realize that. According to the, to the saying of the fathers, sacred scripture is written principally in the church's heart rather than in documents and records. For the church carries in her tradition the living memorial of God's word, and it is the Holy Spirit who gives her the spiritual interpretation of scripture. According to the saying of the fathers, sacred scripture is written principally in the church's heart rather than in documents and records. And so if to use the church is nothing more than a hierarchy, an organization, there's something lacking in your perspective that you need to work on. You need to work on understanding the church. And so instead of trying to change the church, we, we are all better off if we try to change ourselves so that we may discover the church. On November 7th, the Holy Father said, The church does not live of herself, but of the gospel, and draws constant guidance from the gospel for her journey. He added, It is this tradition that makes the entire canon of holy books known, rendering them correctly, understandably, and in an effective manner. The Pope said, He added that God, who spoke to the patriarchs and the prophets, does not cease to speak to the church and through her to the world. To the church and through her to the world. That is the proper ordering of things. And the more you discover scripture, the more you understand that that's how things work. And tonight, I'm hoping to make that statement of the Holy Father a little bit more explicit, a little bit more understandable. And if you have questions about the church... I would suggest that you take note of them and we will address them during the question and answer period after the session. What is the anagogical sense? The anagogical sense from the Greek anagog, leading, means that we can view realities and events in terms of their eternal significance or in terms of their final end, their finality. That sound, that may seem very complicated, but it's actually very simple. You do it all day long. You do it all day long. I'll give you a simple example. You have friends coming over, and you say, I'm going to make them a pizza. So you lay out ingredients in front of you, flour and water and, and oil and pepperoni and other things, and when you look at those ingredients, what do you see? You're seeing them anagogically, as a pizza. You understand? That's it. I know it's a big word, but it really means a simple reality that we take care of it every day. Another example, you planted a tree. You planted an, um, a, an oak, an oak tree. It's this big. Do you see an oak tree this big? Is that what you're seeing? No. You see the finality of that tree, right? You do the same with your kids. Or as parents, we're supposed to do that with our children. Our job is not, as parents, to educate little kids. 
That's not our job. Our job is to educate big kids. So every action we take when we look at our little kid is in view of their finality. Where are they going to end? Not for today, but for tomorrow. Our, as, as our job as parents is not to be our kids' best friends. That's not our job. Our job is to make sure that our kids will grow into beautiful human beings that God ordained and will for them to be. That's our job. So we do that all the time. This anagogical sense that seems so complicated is in fact something we do every day, all day long. So it is not surprising or it should not be surprising that it is embedded in Scripture. For after all, what is the purpose of Scripture? What's the purpose of Scripture? I've heard someone put it very poetically in saying that Scripture is God's love letter to us. Through it, God is saying to us, I love you. I think there is much truth in that statement. But I would also add that Scripture is God's way of telling us how he deals with us as a father. It's his way of showing us how much he loves us and what he will do when we do certain things. That's what scripture is all about. Scripture is not about God revealing to us his essence, what he is in his innermost self. Scripture does not give us the beatific vision. This is reserved for heaven. Scripture is God's letter to us that we hold in our hand as we walk on that journey to heaven. So it is not surprising that there is this anagogical sense built into scripture. Let's turn to some passages to help us understand this. And again, I'm going to repeat to you what I said last time, and I'm hoping that more and more of you are going to take these to heart. Number one, don't be selfish. Take notes and share them with your friends. If you, be, if you have received anything from these Bible study, you ought to share it with others. And number two, if you're a Catholic, please do get a Bible if you don't have one. And if you do have one, make sure it's a Catholic Bible. Um, this is the one I, I, would, uh, I would recommend. It's the Ignatius. Um, this is the Ignatius Bible. It's the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. There are others also. For instance, the... Um, the Bible of Jerusalem can be also a good read. It's the most, the, the most recent translation is problematic. If you have the Bible of Jerusalem, ignore all their comments. That is, if you would like to preserve your faith, ignore their comments. Uh, the older version, 1976, is better. If you can get your hands on it, that's better. The Douay Rams has a lot of good things in it. Uh, there are also some concerns around it, but it's a very good read as well. So you have some options out there. Whatever option you have, you had better start reading Scripture. Okay? Read Scripture. Whether you understand it or not, read Scripture. I'll have more to say about that in a short while. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. 
My translation, I, I have to say, is not the best. It's the one that is published by the um, Conference of Catholic Bishops in the United States. This is what you find on the website. And it's the one that the Vatican carries on the website. And it, it does have some issues. So we'll have to compose with it. I'd recommend the Ignatius one over the one I'm reading right now. The Lord God then built up into a woman the rib that he had taken from the man when he brought her to the man. The man said, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of, out of man this one has been taken. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one body. In this account, the second account of creation, we see the account of the creation of the woman. God placed Adam in a deep sleep, took one of his ribs, or a pair of his ribs, and created a woman with them. Um, it's always interesting to me that, medically speaking, men have one pair of ribs less than women. Um, but the question that we have to ask ourselves, if we're reading scripture at this juncture, from the literal sense, is what is God up to? Why is God going through this complicated process of creating a woman when he could just take in some dust from the ground and he could have made woman, fashioned her the way he fashioned Adam, and he would have breathed the, 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 his spirit in her? You can't say that that's because God wanted to do it a better way. Why can't you say that? Because in the first account of Genesis, after the creation of man, God saw that it was very good. So the way God created man was very good. It wasn't a flaw in design. But you see, God places in Scripture things we need to know so we understand His design. And from the very beginning, God was teaching us about His Son and the church that his son would, would, would found when he would come to earth. The reason why, anagogically, right, God created Eve out of Adam in this fashion because one day on the cross, from the side of Christ, water and blood will flow and the church will be born. So just as Adam was put to sleep and Eve was created out of him, Christ was put to sleep, and the church came out of him. And therefore, we can put into the, in, on the lips of the new Adam the words of the first Adam. Christ, seeing his church, his bride, would say, at last, this one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman for out of my side she had come forth anagogically so literally the, the content of this passage in scripture is about the creation of Eve but through the anagogical meaning we can see the birth of the church and we can also see the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church that has been exemplified for us by the creation of Adam and Eve. Now you notice that word woman used here. 
Where else do you find that word used? And by whom? Jesus. How did he call his, his mother? Consistently. Woman. In our American sounding ears, it doesn't sound very good, does it? Right? I would say in our modern American sounding ears, we have successfully defiled the word woman. But it was not so. It's not to be so. When Jesus uses that word in the Aramaic, he really means my lady. It's an honorific term. But he called her woman specifically because Mary, in her person, embodies the church. Mary, in her person, embodies the church. Let me answer this question. Who can say these words? Bones of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Mary. She's the only one who, looking at the cross, could say, this is bones of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He was born of her. And her alone. So you see that connection between Adam and Eve, Christ and the church, a husband and a wife. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 32. This is a, a text from St. Paul that has been much maligned in these modern times. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of his wife, just as Christ is head of the church. He himself the Savior of the body. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the bath of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This is a passage that in these times, these days and age, has been much maligned by the feminist movement. And especially in the Christian, in the Christian um, tradition, there are some who basically said, you know what, that was St. Paul. You know, he's from the Middle East. Those guys from the Middle East, you know, they're just chauvinistic, egotistic. They know nothing better than that. And, and, and that was for back then, where women didn't know any better. We're, we're better off now. And they would like us to speak about mutual submission. Now, interestingly enough, in his letter concerning women, John Paul II speaks of mutual submission. And that was an occasion for many to say, you see, we're done with St. Paul. A woman does not need to submit to her husband anymore. But John Paul II had a very different idea of mutual submission, which I will come back to in a minute. I'd like to speak first of the submission that is required by Christ of women towards their husbands. You see, there are two types of submission. Two. Which equates to two ways in which you can see or you can have a relationship with God. The first one is the submission of the slave to his master. Slave to the master. Is that what St. Paul has in mind when he speaks of submitting? Is that what he has in mind? 
Notice what he says. He says, For the husband is head of his wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. How is Christ the head of the church? Is he the head of the church the way a taskmaster would be over slaves? Is that what Christ did? No. Okay. Furthermore, every single time people ask Jesus Christ about what he came to do, what did he say? Why did he come here? He came here to do the will of his Father. Right? The will of his Father. What did he pray during his agony? Not my will, but yours. Did he pray this way because Christ was afraid of his Father? Why did he say, not my will, but yours? Out of what? Out of love and respect. That's the submission that St. Paul has in mind. After all, he knows something about submission. Here's the proud Pharisees who persecuted the church, who thought he knew it all, who was going his way thinking that he was, as he says himself, as to the law, blameless. He thought of himself as being blameless as to the law. He was the star pupil of the most respected rabbi of his time. As to the law, blameless. And God had to knock him off his horse and teach him obedience in suffering. He knows something about submission. That's what he's talking about. Now, why does he say, wives, submit your husband as the church to Christ? Because in a Christian marriage between a Christian woman and a Christian man, the purpose of them being together, the purpose of them being brought together by God is for them together to image the Trinity. We say we are in made in the image of God, but Scripture meant it as a couple, as a family, we image God. So just as the Son comes forth from the Father, so the woman comes from the man. And just as the Son and the Father love each other, and that exchange of love is the Holy Spirit, so it is that the man and the woman love each other, and that exchange of love is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, a child. That is God's plan for the family. Why? Because that is God's plan for the church. The church comes forth from the side of Christ, and Christ gazes on his church lovingly, and the church responds back with a gaze of love, and that exchange of love is the fruitfulness of the church, saints in heaven. You see how it works at all levels? What is then marriage? Marriage is a saint-making machine. That's what it is. Marriage is not an institution that we created. We have no authority over defining marriage. It's not us to define. God instituted marriage as a saint-making machine. You put two sinners on one end, press on the slot, and some 40-odd years later, you have saints. That's how it's supposed to work. That's the backdrop that St. Paul has in mind when he speaks about submission. It is submission in sanctity. As such, I'll give you two examples. And I, will, I would recommend that you 
especially if you have issues with, if you have problems with this issue of submission, that you read more about them. The first one is Saint Rita. Saint Rita, who was married to a drunkard and who both sons spurned her, yet through her continued prayer and submission and love to her husband, she managed to get all three of them converted before they died. And the second example I'll give you is a book which you can get, and it's called My Heart Rejoices. My Heart Rejoices. And it is the story of a 19th century woman by the name of Elizabeth Lesseur. L-E-S-S-E-U-R. L-E-S-S-E-U-R. Elizabeth Lesseur was a sickly woman married to an atheist. And he tried everything to get her to lose her faith. And because she was sickly, she could move easily, and she was not able to have many friends who could share the faith with her in France. And she surrounded herself with patristic books. She read, and she was very well read, to the point where every time her husband would come to critique her faith or the church, she would always be able to answer him respectfully, but straight to the point. She did it so well that eventually he was afraid to ask her anything about the faith or to say anything. And she gained his respect. After her death, he discovered a diary that she kept. And he read the diary, and in that diary, he saw how much she loved him, despite everything, and how much she prayed for him and wanted him to convert. Well, convert he did. He became Catholic and a priest. And her, her cause of beatification is open. Read that book to see the greatness of woman. One added thing. This presupposes that the husband is doing what he's supposed to do. Now, I'd like to say one word about that. The task given to woman, especially in our day and age, seems almost impossible. If, if we can characterize the sin of the 19th first century of Christianity as being the pride of men, we can characterize the sin of the 20th century as being the pride of woman. And the sin of man led to war, destruction, and much horror. But the sin of woman leads to the destruction of the family. It's the worst of them all. Ladies, you have a job ahead of you. And it's a big one. You must reclaim womanhood to Christ. And you can't do it by conforming yourself to the image that the media wants to project Constantly. You need to think about that very seriously. And I would, very, I would recommend to all of you to read a book that came out recently. Very small book. Very small book. It might open your eyes. And it's published by Tan. And it's called Dressing with Dignity. Dressing with Dignity. It is written by an ex-Miss... Um, I don't remember which state. She's a beauty pageant for one of the states. She was an anchor woman on, on TV for a very long time, and she speaks about the fashion. I highly recommend that book. Oh, she worked for MTV. And, and so I really recommend that book. Read it and reclaim for yourself the image of womanhood. Right? You have work to do, and serious work with that. It's one thing for a man to be proud and to behave in an idiotic fashion, Nothing new is under the sun. 
it's an entirely different thing for women to shun motherhood. Moms are pillars of civilization. When motherhood goes out of the window, so goes the civilization. So it's one thing if the mission that is given to women by, by St. Paul is difficult. He spends two verses on this. He spends six or seven verses talking to the men. What is he asking the men to do? I want you to listen carefully. Husbands, love, not submit. Love. Think about that for a second. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her to sanctify her. Husbands, understand that the ultimate responsibility of the sanctity of your wife and of your children, as long as they're under your roof, is on your shoulders. Not your wife. Yours. Understand that. When you will stand for your personal judgment, God is not going to ask you how the stock market did for you, or how was that PhD, or if the business was, went well. He's going to simply say, how did you treat my daughter? God is your father-in-law. That's your duty. Your first duty is the sanctity of your wife. It's on you. No one else. The epitaph you really want to have on your tomb when you die is coming from your wife. I had nothing to complain about. You do that, you're, you're in good shape. As, lo as Christ loved his church and laid his life for her, as one priest told me once, okay, here's what you have to do. You have to give, you have to give, you have to give until there's nothing left of you. Welcome to fatherhood. Welcome to being a man. That's what a man is supposed to do. That's our calling. Now, let me ask this question. How many of you think we can do that? Good. Now you understand the dilemma. If you read this, you should go, St. Paul is out of his mind. Men should have a bigger problem with this text than women do. After all, their issue is, I don't want to submit. Our issue is, excuse me, what do you want me to do? Exactly. And there. Once you face that text head on and you understand what is asked of you, you then realize, I better be on my knees. I'm going to need a lot of help. I'm going to need all the help I can get. Lots of it. And God instituted marriage, as I said, as a saint-making machine. Meaning that in the covenant of marriage, in the sacrament of marriage, God has instituted special high-speed pipeline for grace. It's not a modem connection here. Right? It's high-speed. And it's a special sanctifying grace given to you as husbands and wives, and you better call on it. You should believe firmly that God who promised by His blood on the cross to make this happen, will make it happen, provided we cooperate. And that means when a tough gets going in a marriage, in every marriage, your first duty is to go back to Christ and say, now is the time. I need some of those special graces so I can get through this. And you will get it. And you will go through it. And your marriage will grow like a very, very good wine. It will get better 
and better and better and better. That's how it's supposed to work. Now, if you want to blow it from the get-go, if you want to miss the slide and turn your life into misery and turn it into a form of a slow-cooking hell, there's only one thing you can do. Very small thing that has seemingly very little effect. Contracept. That's all you have to do. Now you might say, well, what's the big deal? It's the little thing. But you need to understand when you contracept, what you're doing is telling God, okay, God, the deal that you had in place to begin with, which is that kids, the fruit of love, is a share between you and us, that's over. You're out of the picture. We decide. We will know good and evil. We will know when is the right time, how many, to what extent. And if possible, the sex and the color of their eyes and how intelligent they're going to be. We will know all that. You know what, God? We know better than you. When this happens, the Holy Spirit, who's supposed to be the glue between man and woman, does what we're asking the Holy Spirit to do. He departs. He leaves the family. When the Holy Spirit leaves the family, those pipelines of grace shuts down, shut down. When they shut down, what are you left with? They're opposite. One of the fruits of marriage, of a sanctified marriage, is respect for parents. We don't merit the respect of our children. It isn't a birthright deal. I brought you to life, I'm going to treat you really miserably, but you have to respect me. It doesn't work this way. It's earned. How could kids, how could kids, who can sometimes be harder than the world on their parents? Kids would want their parents to be saints tomorrow. And sometimes parents want the same with their kids, right? How could those kids respect their parents who are sinful, who are tired, who are getting older? How could they respect them? Naturally, our selfishness doesn't want to respect anybody but us. And even that. It is only the flow of grace in the heart of the children that get them to perceive the love and generosity and care and sacrifice of their parents towards them and protect them from selfishness. But if the parent has started contracept, contracepting, then those graces will not flow. Guess what you get? The famous modern word, teenagers. Did you know that teenager is actually a very modern term? Before, we never spoke of teenagers, we spoke of youth. It was a positive thing. Why has it become negative? Precisely because the life of grace has been lost in the families as a result of contraception. You contracept, that's what you're going to get. Sometimes when I walk in, in supermarkets with my seven kids, some people look at me and say, are all these yours? Interestingly enough, how obnoxious people can be. And sometimes I feel like saying, no, these three are mine, those four are rented. And sometimes they even ask me the question in front of their own kids. And I say, yes, they're mine. They say, oh, you must be busy. I, I've yet to meet somebody who's not busy. What they really mean is, you don't have enough time for yourself.
That's what they really mean when I say you must be busy. And then, and then comes the proverbial, wait till they become teenagers. Somehow those kids, are gonna, those kids who are grace and gift of God are going to mushroom into this monster. And I feel like asking them back, how long have you been contracepting? I don't because they'll think I'm a nut. Because the connection isn't that obvious to make. But I would, I would recommend to you to go back and do some correlation from 1932 onward when contraception was introduced in the United States and in the world and see how the breakdown of the family, the rate of divorce, violence has grown as contraception took hold. One interesting statistics. Divorce. The rate of divorce is the same across all denominations. You're Catholic, you're Protestant, you're atheist, you're this, you're that. The rate of divorce is about the same, 50%. And climbing. The only exception are among folks who use natu natural family planning. Across denominations. There, the rate of divorce is 2%. 2%. Think about that. 2%. Back to Ephesians. What you see in the text on Ephesians, therefore, is a reflection on the love of Christ to us. It is an anagogical reading of the text of Genesis. So, the interesting thing about Ephesians is that it has two levels. The literal level is really what St. Paul is telling us about the relationship between a man and a woman, between the church, between Christ and his church. But on the anagogical level, it's really a reflection and an echo of creation. All right? And the interesting thing is that as you start to become very proficient with that sort of reading, you'll notice this kind of chaining, where a literal reading here becomes potentially anagogical or analogical here, and then the literal sense here is again a jump to another text. Why am I pointing that out to you? Because St. John in Revelation has this very annoying habit to do that sometimes to, you know, he will have chains that could be five deep. Where he will evoke certain images in Revelation, and these are actually an anagogical reading on a text down in Isaiah, and Isaiah is actually talking about something that happened with Moses, and Moses is referring to something that happened in Genesis. And John has all that context, all that icon in mind as he writes. No wonder we have difficulty reading Revelation. Because, you see, we don't work at studying Scripture. We just want to open the book and somehow press on some automatic button, get ourselves hooked up with the Holy Spirit, and get a download. That's how we think it should work. No, it doesn't. It's hard work. But it's blessed work. As an echo to what St. Paul says in Ephesians about the church being presented with splendor, we see that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding day of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. You see the imagery of marriage again presenting the bride, which is the church, at a wedding feast. All right? At a wedding feast, she was allowed to wear a bright, clean linen garment, and it's added in Revelation, the linen represents the righteous deeds of the holy ones. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who have been called to the wedding feast of the Lamb. 
And he said to me, these words are true, they come from God. What is the wedding feast of the Lamb? Are you called to the wedding feast of the Lamb? What is it? Mass. Every Sunday is the wedding feast of the Lamb. You know, I can tell how much someone knows about his faith by the way they dress on Sunday. Very easy. Because if they, have, if, if they have an understanding of what Mass is, it's a wedding, they never showed up with flip-flops or shorts or dressed like they're going to a party, the wrong kind of party, that is. They wouldn't talk at the end of Mass in the church. By the way, do you know that talking in the church, unless it's absolutely necessary, is a venial sin? You know that? Why? Simple. Because this is a holy place. He makes it holy by his presence. Just as he told Moses, take off your sandals. The ground you're standing on is holy because of his presence. How much more holy it is by him being present here, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And yet, after Mass, which we do like a whole... We get up, we say hi, we shake hands, and we ignore him who's here. Would you imagine if Moses was there and the burning bush was in front of him and somebody showed up? Moses would have said, hey, pal, long time no see, how are you doing today? You think Moses would have done that? But we have such a poor conception of what Mass is in the church. And oftentimes, a not fault of ours, because the Catholic education we received is, shall we say, lacking that we just get up and we treat this place like it's a hall. Or we start chatting among each other. I can tell a lot about where one is in his faith and what he understands just by a couple of things on Sunday. It's the wedding feast of the Lamb. Let me ask this question. If you are invited to a wedding, would you go without taking a shower, if let's say you haven't showered for the past three days, would you do that? How come Catholics go to Mass and don't go to confession? I don't understand that. You're coming to the wedding feast of the Lamb where He's going to unite His soul to yours. And we take it for granted that it's okay to have our souls without taking a bath for six months. And the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator of the Universe, is going to come in and make our heart His house. And He's going to feel happy. Think about that. That's what we do. Day in, day out. This is how we treat Him. Constantly. Think about that. Now, this image of marriage occurs again in Isaiah. And without that anagogical sense of the bride and the groom, that passage of Isaiah I'm going to read to you makes no sense. In fact, the Jews did not understand it. They didn't know how to understand it. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 1 through 5. For Zion's sake I will not be silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her vindication shines forth like the dawn and her victory like a burning torch. So there's a promise that God will vindicate Zion. He will vindicate his church. Those same words of vindication 
occur in the letter of Peter, the first letter of Peter. Same kind of language. Verse 3, You shall be a glorious crown in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem held by your God. A royal diadem. That's what the church is. That's what we're supposed to be as members of the church. This is our dignity, our high, our high calling into the faith. Verse 4, No more shall men call you forsaken or your land desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. You notice the marital language? My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and makes your land his spouse. As a young man marries a virgin, your sons shall marry you. That's verse 4 or 5. 5. As a young man marries a virgin, your sons shall marry you. What does that mean? What does that mean? You see, that text literally makes no sense. Children cannot marry their mother. That's a given. So therefore, that's not what Isaiah has in mind, but he doesn't explain. And it only makes sense through an anagogical reading of the relationship between us and the church. What St. Paul was talking about. Christ has a bride. He has one bride, not 33,000. He has one. And likewise, we are called to enter into a spiritually marital relationship with the church, meaning that we have to come to understand the church for what she is, seeing it from within, not from without. And you can only do that if you, are, if you have a prayerful life, if you are contemplative, if you see things through the eyes of faith. But that's how this passage in Isaiah makes sense. Without it, it makes absolutely no sense. And in fact, it really re requires a Catholic reading. Because that's the only possible reading you can have. Otherwise, how do you explain your sons shall marry you? Go ask Protestants. They don't touch that passage because they don't know what to do with it. It makes no sense to them. They don't have that covenantal nature. They don't understand marriage in this way. And so they, cannot, they can't explain it. Scripture is closed when you don't have the church. Now, I think I'd like to talk a little bit more about the role of the church and her relationship to the end times. Most often, one of the errors that people do when they think of the end times is to think of the end times separate from the church. In other words, their thinking about the end times is either scientific or secular. Whereas the proper understanding of the end times must be centered on the church. There is no end times without the church. It begins here, it ends here. That's how you have to see it. Once you adjust that perspective, the end times will begin to make a lot more sense than they have thus far. And that's why I want to glimpse that today. I'm going to come back to this. And hopefully, it will start to sink in. Let's, take, let's start with the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 14, verse 17 through 22. 
1 Corinthians chapter 14, 17, 22. For you may be giving thanks very well, but the other is not built up. I give thanks to God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. Anyone here familiar with speaking in tongues? Okay. This is a very modern movement, it seems, where a lot of people are praying in tongues. Meaning that when they pray, you don't understand the words they're uttering. Right? It's, it is a true charism of the church, as Paul himself says. It's not an invention. Paul adds, I give, I give thanks to God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. But, but in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind so, so as to instruct others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So he's saying that understanding scripture and instructing others is more important of a charism than speaking in tongues. <coughs> Excuse me. He's not saying speaking in tongues is not important. He's just setting them up appropriately. Why? Because he has at heart the building of the church. It is written in the law, by people speaking strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but unbelievers. Tongues are a sign not for believers, but unbelievers. Whereas prophecy... Prophecy doesn't mean prophesying purely about the future. Prophecy means speaking the word of God and presenting it to others in ways that is understandable and in ways that changes their lives. Prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Okay? So St. Paul, speaking of tongues, says quotes Isaiah, that passage is from Isaiah, and he has an anagogical reading of that passage. That passage is from Isaiah 28, 116. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 1 through 16. In that passage, Isaiah is chiding the princes, the rulers of Israel. Remember, at that time, the kingdom of David has been split into two. The kingdom of Judah down south, and the kingdom of Israel up north. And he's now talking to the princes of the kingdom of Israel up north. And remember what we said about Hebrews, Jews, and Israelites. I repeat that because I'm not always sure that everyone who was here today was there last time. Hebrews are all descended of Eber, right? An ancestor of Abraham. Jew Israelites are descendants of Israel, Jacob. And Jews are descended of Judah, the son of Jacob. So that's how they are included, right? All Jews are Israelites, but not all Israelites are Jews. And all Israelites are Hebrews, but not all Hebrews are Israelites. You need to understand this biblically, otherwise you miss the point. Woe to the, to the, woe to the majestic garland of the drunkard Ephraim. Ephraim was also a name known... Ephraim was a name used to indicate the, the northern kingdom because oftentimes it is related to the tribe of Ephraim from which the king came. All right? To the fading blooms of his glorious beauty on the lead of him who is stupefied with wine. He's basically saying, you're a bunch of drunkards. That's what you are. And he's, he's pronouncing now a curse. Woe is a curse. And he says, 
Verse 9, to whom would he impart knowledge? To whom would he convey the message? To those just weaned from milk? To those taken from the breast? He's basically saying, the Lord has a message to give to you, but you're all so drunk that the only ones he can give the message to are the babes. So you're not listening. He's been talking to you. You're not listening. All right. And he adds, for he says, precepts upon precepts, precepts upon precepts, rule on rule, rule on rule, here a little, there a little. That passage is read to you, precepts upon precepts, precepts upon precepts. It's actually guesswork. In the, in the original text, it's child babble. It's the kind of babble that children would do in Hebrew. Okay? And he adds, yes, with stammering lips and in strange language, he will speak to this people. So what was Isaiah telling them? He's telling them, you have been behaving in an ungodly way and you really long to be like the other nations. Fine, the Lord will send you to the other nations and he will speak to you by people with a strange tongue. And more of those people. When the, um, in 722, people with strange tongue came down, people whom the Israelites could not understand, and they decimated the kingdom of Israel, completely destroying it, and forcing the ten tribes to intermingle with other people to the point where the lineage was lost. That's what he had in mind. He was basically uttering a prophecy saying that the political upheaval and the war that is coming down should not be looked at in a secular way. You should see it at God's judgment on his people. And that's what happened in 722. Now, you see, you see that um, St. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, is using an, the anagogical reading to go to Isaiah, fish that text, and bring it back and say, okay, for the longest time in the, in the history of the chosen people, there were no folks praying with tongues. No one is praying with tongues. Suddenly, after the death of Christ and his resurrection, a whole bunch of people in the, in, in the church was praying with tongues. Paul sees that and understands what's coming. Paul was not the only one. Turn to Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 22. The Holy Spirit has just come down on the apostles. And what happened when the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles? Remember that? In Pentecost? What happened to them? They started speaking with... Coincidence? I think not. Then Peter comes out, and what do the, the, those who are listening to them say about them? They're drunk. What a coincidence. You see, that's the context they have in their minds. Because those events are events that impacted their lives. There were destruction and death because of them. We, living here in San Diego, by the beach, have no clue about their history and what this text means. And we read it and we go, whatever you want, God. It's your Bible after all. And then he says, you are, listen carefully now. Peter raises his voice and proclaims that you who are Jews or from Judea. He doesn't address everyone from the entire world. Only those who are from Judea, most specifically from Jerusalem. Indeed, all of you staying in Jerusalem, 
pay attention. He's not addressing his message to the whole world, very specifically to the Jews in Jerusalem. And he says, let this be known to you and listen to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Here we go again. Anagogical reading of a text given by Joel. It will come to pass in the last days that I will pour out a portion of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And then he adds verse 7, The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And it shall be that everyone shall be saved who calls on the name of the Lord. You who are Israelites, he spoke to the Jews, now he's speaking to the Israelites. Up north, hear these words. Okay, so what do you do? When you notice that there is anagogical reading happening here by Peter, you go back to Joel to check the literal meaning of the text. Joel said, chapter 5, Then afterward I will pour out my spirit upon all mankind. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even upon the servants and the handmaids in those days I will pour out my spirit. Looks pretty good, doesn't it? It's good news. I will work wonders in heavens and on earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, at the coming of the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day. Then everyone shall be rescued who calls on the name of the Lord, for on Mount Zion there shall be some who escape. Sort of I have a good news, and have a bad news wrapped up in one word. In Jerusalem, there shall be some who escape. What's the implication? The majority won't. So when we hear about sun and moon and stars, don't take that to mean, scientifically, that great upheaval is, coming, is happening in the cosmos. Sun, moon, and star are the ways in which the ancient measure time, and therefore dynasties. What is a month? It's a month. That's what it comes from. So when he speaks this way about the sun, the moon, and the star, what is he saying? Time's up. It's over. Indeed, Joel prophesied to Jerusalem and around 580 Babylonians came down and destroyed the whole city. Okay? Fast forward to Peter. Peter is speaking to Jerusalem. And what happened in 70 AD? Titus came down with the Roman forces and utterly destroyed the city. Between 600 and 1.2 million Jews died in that siege. You understand? He's not talking about some far out event in, in, a far, in a galaxy far, far away. He's talking about political events and he's giving them their eschatological meaning. Because God is always in control. So, the Catholic Church, for about 2,000 years, went off on her merry way with miracles, with prophecy, with saints, with all sorts of garrison except one, tongues. And it only showed up recently. It only showed up recently. We shouldn't be surprised. 1.2 million babies aborted every year with the support of the Catholic vote, thank you very much. Catholics contracepting, families being destroyed, that which is evil promoted as good. What do you think a loving father would do? 
would he wait and let these people continue doing what they're doing until they all fall off the cliff into hell? Or would he send in some measure to correct them? Which of the two you think would show his mercy? The first or the second? I pray that we are in the second. Because if things continue the way they are, with economic prosperity, stocks doing very well, real estate booming, we might subconsciously think, God, God is good. God is taking care of us. Yeah. We have it upside down. Because we don't see the patterns in Scripture. This, th those passages were written in Scripture not for them, as St. Paul says, but for us. They were written for our edification, for us to understand how God deals with us. I would like to say, before I close... I took longer than normal, but I want to be able to stay on time, so bear with me for another five minutes. I want to say five words on the moral sense. The moral sense is something you're very familiar with. This is a sense that is most close to your heart. You read scripture trying to see what it says to you. However, by its very nature, it's called the moral sense. Right? It's not called the emotional sense. It's not called the make-me-feel-good sense. It's called the moral sense. Therefore, it relates to what? Morality, meaning how am I supposed to conduct myself today? But if you do not know the basic principles of morality, how can you make sense of the moral sense? You can't, right? I got an antidote for you right here. Let me distribute that and... Um, what I have for you here is a little tool that you might want to use for your confession. By the way, how do, how do you know that Catholics are not really awake to the faith? It's very, very simple. The ratio between those who go to confession and those who go to communion. Maybe 10% of all Catholics go regularly to confession, but almost 100% of them go every Sunday to Mass and receive communion without even a second thought. If you have been, whatever rate you're going to confession at right now, whatever rate it is, I'd recommend you just double it. Start with that. If you've been going once every six months, well, go once every three. If you've been going once every year, go twice every year. Double it. But let me tell you what this is, and this is going to help you with your moral reading. The first sheet essentially lists the most common and the most problematic areas of our lives that we're dealing with on a regular basis. Lust, envy, pride, lie, gossip. I repeated envy three times. Um, it's worth repeating, but that was not my intent. Be it as it may, lust, envy, pride, lying, gossip, despair, drunkenness, greed, deceit, despondency, anger, Vanity, jealousy, laziness, gluttony. These things are now repeated cryptically for purpose on this sheet. And on top you have the days of the week. You can see that if you were to cut this with scissors, this piece will conveniently fit in your purse or in your wallet. If during your day or at the end of your day, you're just to go down to this list, five minutes, ask simply yourself, this question, how many times have I done any of those things? And just put checks for every time 
You've done it. Little or big, doesn't matter. And it's not about torturing yourself, okay? I'm not asking you to sit down and go through psychoanalysis. Five minutes. Very, very light. You ask, you invoke the Holy Spirit, you've got an angel. Show me the areas of my life where I've muffed up today, where I fell. And you just go through, have I been envious? You think about it, and if the thought comes to your mind, put it down. Have I had movies of gluttony? Well, if you ate three pounds of chocolate that day, you probably want to put it down. Okay? Etc., etc. By the end of the week, you look at this, and you invite it to the wedding feast of the Lamb. He's going to unite himself with your soul. You do this, I guarantee you, money back guarantee. You go to confession every week, once a week, in six months, six months period, you'd make more progress in your spiritual life than you've done in 20 years. It's guaranteed. You want to understand scripture? You really want to love the Lord? You want to do His will? You want to be good Catholics? Go to confession. And if you, you make this thing, and at the end of the week you look at it, and you see all that stuff, and your conscience is now awake, and your conscience is speaking to you, and your guardian angel is talking to you, you may forego receiving communion that Sunday. If there are people among you who are going to daily Mass, this is a must. An absolute must. The only exception, I would say, is if you have, if you've fallen under scrupulosity. If you have issues with scrupulosity, don't do this. It'll make it worse. What is scrupulosity? Scrupulosity is this defect where if you did not say your rosary today, you think you've committed a moral sin. Where if you've eaten a candy, you're asking yourself, was it a sin? Put it this way. If every time you breathe, you're wondering if it's a sin, you have issues of scrupulosity. If, on the other hand, you think about sin once every Easter, this is for you, okay? St. Augustine, Lord, help me know myself that I may know thee. Help me know myself that I may know thee. You do this, you take the sacrament seriously. God will have mercy on you. I hope that in this first part of our study, what you have a glimpse of, at least, is how Scripture is harmonious. How Scripture talks to Scripture how there are echoes between texts. And you may now have a little bit better understanding of the mindset of the apostles, of the prophets, of the evangelists. How when they wrote, they had a store of knowledge available to them with which they were familiar, on which they were drawing constantly. We've lost it. As Catholics, this was ours. This is our heritage. And we've lost it. But guess what? God is calling upon us, upon you, to reclaim it today. St. Peter, in his first letter, makes it explicit. Always be prepared to render an apology, apologia in the Greek, meaning a defense, an explanation of your faith. It is not enough to know what you're believing in. You must know why you believe it, so that you can explain it to others. It is required of us. And it all starts with prayer. And it all ends with prayer. 
So again, I urge you to take 15 minutes of your day if you haven't yet. Make it a habit to read a passage of scripture and spend quiet time in prayer, meditating, thinking about, asking God to help you understand that passage. And in the process, for those of you who are searching what God wants of them, ask the Lord. Here I am, Lord. I've come to do your will. Show me. And he will. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.